History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, comrades, and welcome to the podcast you are currently listening to. I promise, this isn't a Russian invasion, just a temporary occupation. I'm Roberto, one of the hosts of the podcast, Czar Power. And I'm Brendan, the other half of the podcast. Together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. They will compete based on how well they fought, how successful they were in life, how much kompromat, or blackmail, they had on them, how handsome they were, and how long they ruled for. After being scored, we decide whether they get to party it out in the Kremlin or get sent straight to the Gulag. Those who make it to the Kremlin will need to duke it out for the position of best Russian ruler. You can find us on any podcast host as Czar Power, on Twitter at Czar Power Pod, and on Facebook as Czar Power. That's Czar spelled T-S-A-R. Now, 
Back to your regularly scheduled podcast. And if you hear a knock on your door, beware. The KGB is coming to make your stay a bit more permanent. everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 82, Debrief of the Brothers. I do want to apologize that this one is a little late. I recorded it, and then the audio was corrupted, and I had to record it again. Before we begin, I just want to remind everyone that this is the last episode before the summer sticker giveaway for new Patreon subscribers ends. Anybody who signs up for any tier will get a sticker that says The History of Persia in Old Persian cuneiform, in addition to all of the usual benefits like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and podcast merchandise. You can find that at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash history of Persia. If you want the same stickers or any of the t-shirts, hoodies, hats, etc., you can find that on the podcast store at historyofpersiapodcast.com. And of course, you can find links to Patreon in the same place. I also want to announce that episode 83 will be the last weekly release for the time being. I'm not going anywhere. I've actually got everything written out to almost episode 100. But there's a big transition coming up, and I need more time for research. Technically speaking, we are not totally back on track as if I'd been doing bi-weekly this whole time but I want the next sort of story arc to have a consistent flow. I am close to catching up, and there will be a couple of back-to-back releases for special episodes in the next few months to close the gap. Never mind real-life stuff, and maybe a couple of Acaemenid-related projects that I want to start sending to publishers. Maybe. Just a teaser. If and when we reach the 250 Patreon subscriber goal, I'll go right back to weekly releases. Anyway, I can't be the only person who is exhausted at this point, right? I mean, I've been marathon writing and recording these Cyrus the Younger episodes, but we've covered 401 BC at the pace of, like, one episode per three months of history? It's a lot, and we're not done, but we will pick up the pace a little bit. This episode is going to wrap up the narrative aftermath of the Civil War, and serve as a bit of an explanation for why I drew it out for so long. I can't even begin to summarize everything that we've talked about. Darius II died, Cyrus tried to kill Arsaces, Arsaces became Artaxerxes II. Cyrus made plans to be Cyrus III. He raised an army of mercenaries and local supporters to march off for a fratricidal war 
in which both candidates for the throne almost died in the span of a few minutes. And it only ended when a group of Carrion servants, who were only there because Tissaphernes had a personal grudge, killed Cyrus mostly by accident. We left off in the last episode with Artaxerxes, exhausted, wounded, and dehydrated, holding his younger brother's decapitated head up by the hair for a crowd to see. That crowd relinquished any remaining loyalties they had to the late prince, dropped to their knees, laid their heads on the ground, and prostrated themselves before the one true Achaemenid king, Artaxerxes II. So I want to start by acknowledging something about my presentation of Cyrus the Younger. Months before I started writing these episodes, I made the decision to do something a little unorthodox and recognize Cyrus's claim to the throne by calling him King Cyrus III. Cyrus is not traditionally identified as a true king in the primary sources. Even his most ardent supporters, like Xenophon, call Artaxerxes the king, never mixing that title with Cyrus himself. But here's the thing. I think, if we're going to credit Xerxes II with being king, even though he really only controlled Parsa by virtue of already being there and had no supporters, then Cyrus the Younger certainly earned his regnal number. By the standards of Achaemenid usurpers and challengers, Cyrus probably came the closest of anybody who didn't actually succeed. He came into the conflict with three or four satrapies on his side. He had a cadre of nobles in his army and his mother's friends in the royal court. There were apparently a number of satraps who sat on the fence rather than committing to Artaxerxes, too. For all intents and purposes, his army had won the battle and Artaxerxes was wounded and on the run. If Cyrus hadn't been stabbed in the face, like even if he had been stabbed but somewhere less consequential, he may have carried the day and become king. I say he earned it in the end. But now, Cyrus was dead. His older brother had defended his inheritance and won. And it was time for celebrations and punishments. After they had looted the defeated camp and the baggage train, the loyalists took as many prisoners as they could and went back to Babylon. Once there, they may have discovered one more loss on their side. With the large Armenian cadre in the army, the last surviving son of the Hedarnid rebel Teratukmes came down as well. He was the governor of southern Armenia, and probably came to command his troops, but fell ill shortly after arriving in Babylon. With Cyrus bearing down on them, Parasadus seized an opportunity for vengeance. She thought her favorite son was coming to let her have free reign and poisoned the young governor. By the time the battle was done, the son of Teratukmes was dead. On the battlefield, 
the Greeks, who were still unaware that Cyrus was dead, slipped back into their camp to pick through the leftovers. Basically, all that remained were a few functional tents. There wasn't even enough food to have a meal after a long day of warfare. But the next morning presented two very different scenes for the survivors on either side of the battle. Down in Babylon, Artaxerxes held court and celebrated the heroes of the battle with gifts, treasure, and titles. The largest and grandest rewards were actually sent from the war loot to the son of Artaxerxes up in the Caucasus to honor his father's attempt to defeat Cyrus in a duel. Theseus was also lavished with gifts as the physician who had saved Artaxerxes' life, possibly including some additional ceremonial offices at the royal court. After years of resenting and undermining Cyrus at every turn, Tissaphernes was rewarded with his old job, re-promoted to satrap of Lydia. Orontes, the son of Artaxerxes, was richly rewarded, Not only was he promoted to the full satrap of Armenia, but he married one of Artaxerxes II's daughters, Rhodogune. Tirabazus was also rewarded for rescuing Artaxerxes in the thick of battle. He got Orontes' old job in western Armenia. As part of the ceremony, Mithridates, the infantry officer who had wounded Cyrus, tried to come forward with the late prince's saddlecloth and explain his story about not knowing who Cyrus was. However, he was ushered away and given gifts by a eunuch, who very emphatically told him that these were his rewards for finding Cyrus's saddlecloth. When the carrion who dealt the killing blow tried to come forward, he received the same treatment. He was pulled aside and given a large payment with the emphatic message that this was his reward for coming to the king just after Artaxerxes and confirming the story about Cyrus's death. Meanwhile, Artaxerxes was regaling the court with a story that made its way into the writing of a Greek historian called Danon. The official story told at court was that Cyrus and Artaxerxes had dueled in the middle of the battle, First, Cyrus wounded the king's horse, and then Tirabazus got him a new steed to continue the fight. Real story, Tirabazus helped Artaxerxes escape after he was wounded. But then Cyrus reared around and charged Artaxerxes with a lance, knocking him from his horse once again. But the king got back up. Real story, Cyrus stabbed through Artaxerxes' armor, and nearly killed him. Then finally, as Cyrus raced towards the king like a madman, Artaxerxes himself threw a javelin and killed his brother. Real story, Artaxerxes was being stitched up in a ditch while a couple of random dudes killed Cyrus. Admittedly, Artaxerxes' version is cooler, but he knew that. That was the point. He had to look good and make it clear that not just anybody could defeat a Persian royal. Artaxerxes doled out punishments here as well, but he clearly didn't have any plans to purge the empire of Cyrus's supporters. 
Parasodus just sat weeping at the high table next to her eldest son as Artaxerxes gave out poetic but largely inconsequential punishments. Cyrus was dead, and none of his supporters was likely to try and make a bid for the throne by themselves. No reason to go overboard. Arbaces, the satrap of Media who had deserted in the middle of the battle, had apparently tried to ditch his brand new purple tunic and switch back to Artaxerxes' side just after Cyrus was wounded. Artaxerxes stated that his crime wasn't treason, but pathetic cowardice. So Arbaces was stripped of his titles and ordered to carry a naked prostitute around on his shoulders in public for the rest of the day. It seems too silly, but Plutarch is citing Theseus here, and maybe, if it's that ridiculous, it might just be true. Another noble who had switched sides in the run-up to the battle had slipped back into Artaxerxes' ranks at some point and was boasting that he had actually killed two of Cyrus's nobles. As a liar and a traitor, Artaxerxes had his tongue pierced in three places. This seems to have been the standard caliber of punishment for people who had committed treason in this battle. Mithridates, the lowly infantry officer, wanted fame and recognition, but accepted his reward and went away quietly. The Carian servant was angry about it and started shouting in the middle of Artaxerxes' victory party that the king was a liar and it was really he who had killed Cyrus the Younger. That was a bridge too far, and embarrassing for the king. Artaxerxes ordered his guards to seize this carrion and cut off his head. That is where Parasadus stepped in. Fair warning, this next part has some pretty graphic descriptions of torture. Skip ahead like four minutes to avoid that. The queen mother probably wiped off her tears and cleared her throat before interjecting. And the words Plutarch puts in her mouth probably weren't all that far from the truth, if not a direct quote of what Theseus overheard. My king, do not let this accursed carrion off so easily, but leave him to me, and he shall receive the fitting reward for those daring words. So, Artaxerxes consigned the man to Parasadus who ordered the executioners to take him and torture him by breaking him on a wheel for ten days, then to gouge out his eyes, and finally to drop molten brass into his ears until he died. Again, these are the sort of stories that modern historians often chalk up to, well, the Greeks tried to make the Persians look like monsters. But this is coming from Theseus, who attributes more horrendous torture to Parasadus than all of the Greek historians give to all of the other Persian royals collectively, and still praises the Queen Mother throughout his Persica. It's not like Atossa or Amestris in previous generations, where the occasional slight against the royal family makes it in with plausible punishment, 
and then gets drowned out by wild nonsense like burying people alive in a sacrifice to the god of death, or bathing in the blood of virgins to stay young. Parasodus's cruelty is almost always directly connected to offenses against herself and her children. Theseus makes it sound like she had preferred torture methods. I do think that Queen Mother Parasodus was a cruel, vindictive monster of a person, even if Theseus embellished on the specifics. The son of Teratukmes and this Carian servant were just the beginning of Parasodus's reign of terror. She had seen the gifts offered to the Carian and thought the very similar set of jewelry and treasure given to Mithridates seemed suspicious. After the Carian was dead, she had one of her servants, a eunuch named Sparamitses, arrange a small dinner party for some of the middling officials and officers still in Babylon, including Mithridates. Sparamitses made sure to get his guest of honor just a little drunk, and then started asking him questions about his finery, and why picking a blanket up off the ground earned him so many rewards. Just buttered up enough to be stupid in Parasodus' own house, Mithridates bragged about being the one who killed Cyrus the Younger. Sparamitzes took that information to his boss, and Parasodus went to Artaxerxes, telling him that Mithridates was bragging and calling the king a liar at parties. Which is true, even if it was entrapment. Artaxerxes was furious, and allowed Parasodus to take matters into her own hands if it would shut up this upstart infantry officer. She opted for the ordeal of boats, in which the victim is tied into a boat facing up to the sky, with his arms hands, and feet sticking out from underneath a lid. The victim is force-fed milk and honey until he can't take any more and starts vomiting. Then he was sent out into a lake to die from a combination of the sun, rats, insects, and other pests. As the formal period of mourning for Cyrus was coming to an end, Parasodus had one more victim in mind one of Artaxerxes' servants named Bagapates. He had been the one who personally cut off Cyrus's head for Artaxerxes to display. But Bagapates hadn't actually done anything that could be played as a crime for Parasodus to execute him legally. So she resorted to tricks. One evening in the palace she challenged Artaxerxes to a dice game. The king was bored, and his mother had been cordial, despite her grief since the battle. Maybe a family game night would be a good idea. There were several games involving dice in the ancient world, and it's never clear what exactly it meant, but it was almost always gambling, and this was no exception. Multiple sources report that gambling was a common pastime in the Achaemenid court, so there was nothing suspicious here. Parasodus offered up a thousand Dariks if Artaxerxes won. 
Apparently, there was some element of strategy to this game because several of our sources say that the Queen Mother let Artaxerxes win. She challenged him to another round, but suggested they raise the stakes. After all, we're talking about a pair of gamblers who were probably the wealthiest and most powerful human beings ever to exist at the time. Any amount of money might as well have been Walmart brand poker chips. Parasodus suggested that the winner would get to pick one of the loser's servants and take them on as their own staff. The great king agreed, and Parasodus won. You know, whatever. He had lots of servants, and it's not like working for the queen mother was some kind of embarrassing demotion. Naturally, Parasodus chose Bagapates as her prize. Artaxerxes was confused that she chose one of his military attendants, but a deal's a deal. As soon as Bagapates reached Parasodus's mansion, he was taken to a torture chamber and tied to a cross. Not to be crucified, but instead, he was flayed alive from the feet up, and the upper register of the cross was used as a hanger for the extra skin. Artaxerxes raged at his mother in private, but she simply told him not to make decisions if he couldn't handle the consequences. He was king, after all. In public, Artaxerxes kept quiet about this dispute, but Statera, his wife, publicly condemned her mother-in-law and refused to interact with Parasodus at court. The sources don't dwell on it, but Parasodus had also just assassinated Statera's nephew. Just another straw before it broke their shared camel's back, I guess. The chasm between the two women in Artaxerxes' life grew ever wider. In the weeks this palace drama was playing out behind closed doors, it was not immediately clear that the war was over. Artaxerxes had definitely won, but that didn't mean there wouldn't be more battles. It was a very strange situation. The enemy's whole goal was gone, but this invading army had made it all the way into the center of the empire and was suddenly left floating in fear of execution for treason, with no supplies, and more than 10,000 mercenaries who were no longer being paid. It was a recipe for marauders and bandits to fan out through the imperial heartland as this army tried to run away. The morning after the Battle of Kunaxa, Clearchus, Xenophon, and between 10 and 12,000 of their closest friends woke up with growling stomachs in the ruins of Cyrus the Younger's encampment. In their failed attempt to defend the baggage train from Artaxerxes' infantry, Tissaphernes had taken the Persian cavalry and stole off with the baggage, leaving the Greeks with no food to speak of and no knowledge of Cyrus's fate. As Clearchus and his officers were meeting to try and figure out next steps, two riders approached from the north. They weren't coming from Babylon, so they probably were not Artaxerxes' men. They were allowed to approach, and some of the Greek officers recognized them. 
It was an odd pair to say the least. One was a Phrygian with a Greek name. This was Procles, a descendant of the deposed Spartan king Demeritus, who had been given territory in northern Anatolia during the first war with the Delian League. The other was an Egyptian named, and this is true, Glos, the son of Tomos, Cyrus's admiral back in Cilicia. They were part of Areios's forces that had escaped from the battlefield after Artaxerxes proved that Cyrus was dead. Glos and Procles explained the situation to Clearchus and his officers. Cyrus was dead, and Areios had retreated to the north overnight. The Persian general would be happy for the Greeks to join them and retreat back through hostile territory together, but he was not going to wait one more day in open country. Apparently, the plan was to return to Ionia, implying that Areios and Cyrus's other noble supporters would join the Greeks for their trip home and live out their lives in exile. Clearchus and his commanders debated for a bit and then sent Procles and Glos back with a counteroffer and a few representatives from the Greek army. Menon went as both Clearchus's representative and to reunite with his implied lover, Ariaios. Kerasophus went as the official representative of the Spartan government, even though he was a relatively minor official in the overall mercenary army. Both were necessary because Clearchus's counteroffer was for Ariaios to march south, join the Greeks, and assault Babylon together. As the Greeks saw it, they had already beaten the enemy in battle which was true enough, and if they attacked now, they could take Artaxerxes by surprise with depleted forces and install Ariaios himself as the new king of Persia. Unstated, but omnipresent in any discussion of a mercenary army without a paymaster, the Greeks were also hoping to sack Babylon and get the money they had been promised by Cyrus. While they waited the Greek troops were going on almost 36 hours without a meal, and surveyed their surroundings. It's oddly one of the best stories to get a view of the detritus on an ancient battlefield. In the looting and fighting, oxen and donkeys from the baggage train had gotten loose and were now just wandering around, so the Greeks wrangled a few of those for their meat. Cooking meant fire, and even their firewood had been carried off by the king's army. So instead, they went and looted the battlefield. They picked up scattered arrows and broke up wicker shields for kindling. They hacked apart wooden shields and wagon wheels for fuel, and collected them in some of the intact wagons that had been left over from the baggage train. They harnessed some of the other animals that they didn't plan to eat to drag everything back. For cookware, they picked up some of the smaller, more dome-like metal shields and filled them with water to use as cooking pots. What Xenophon doesn't say, but definitely implies, is that they also looted the arms and armor from the dead. 
Around midday, the Greeks were all back in camp, but still processing the animals and setting up their cook fires, when a group of riders came from the south. It wasn't enough to be an attack, but that definitely got their attention. It was, predictably, an envoy from Artaxerxes, with one of the Greeks who had ridden east alongside Tissaphernes as a translator. They offered the mercenaries safe passage if they would surrender here and now. Artaxerxes was victorious. He had personally killed Cyrus. But the mercenaries were proud men, proud of their prowess and accomplishments in battle, proud of their high-ranking offices and families, and still hoping for a big pile of Persian loot. Clearchus looked around conspicuously at all of the supplies and armor they had picked up from Artaxerxes' dead troops, and told the envoys that winners don't give up their weapons so easily. Then Clearchus actually left the meeting, deciding that presiding over a religious sacrifice was more important. Most of the remaining mercenary commanders offered some version of we'd rather die. Xenophon's commander, Proxenus, offered a new take on the message that Leonidas had supposedly given to Xerxes before the Battle of Thermopylae. Of course, all of these mercenaries had read or heard Herodotus. So the message was very clear. If Artaxerxes wants us to put down our weapons, why doesn't he lead an army up here himself and make us? We haven't been defeated in battle yet. We made your forces turn tail and run. Another commander named Theopompus offered a more tempered response. As you can see for yourself, we have no other possessions beside our arms and valor at the moment. Now, if we keep our arms, we think that we can use our valor too, but if we give them up, then we will also be deprived of our lives. So do not think for a moment that we will give you the only possessions that we have left. Instead, with these things, we can do battle and take your possessions as well. A few of the Greeks did try to negotiate, potentially seeing a way out of this situation without getting killed in a final blaze of glory and getting to have a healthy salary. They suggested that Artaxerxes just hire them. They had served Cyrus, sure, but they were still mercenaries at the end of the day, and for the right price, they could help out Artaxerxes, too. What about Egypt, huh? Rumors traveled fast on the royal road, and it was sounding like things were getting pretty messy on the Nile. This was actually the option that Clearchus went with when he came back and found everyone still debating. He told the Persian envoy that his army would absolutely, under no circumstance, ever lay down their arms in Persian territory. They were willing to work as mercenaries for the great king, and the king could make them an offer, but they would not surrender. The envoy was forced to return home and deliver these suggestions to Artaxerxes. That evening, Carisophus and Procles returned with Ariaios' answer. 
The Persian noble was flattered by their suggestion, but no. The Tigris was still full, even if the Euphrates was almost dry, and that far south they would need a fleet to besiege Babylon. On top of that, Ariaios was solidly in the middle of the noble hierarchy, and the rest of the nobility would just have him assassinated if he tried to claim the throne. He was going to start marching home in the morning. So Clearchus came up with plans to join Ariaios. Fully expecting an attack from the south, he told his men to get some rest, and then they would march in the middle of the night using a protective formation to guard the small baggage train they had rebuilt from the refuse of the battlefield. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. They set out just after sunset, bidding a bitter farewell to 350 Thracian mercenaries who opted to turn themselves in to Artaxerxes. By midnight, they had reached Ariaios's camp, they made sacrifices, swore oaths to one another, since they were no longer bound by the oaths they had made to Cyrus. It was only after the formal religious agreements were made that Ariaios elaborated on their newest set of problems. Cyrus the Younger's remaining Anatolian troops 
didn't have any more food than the mercenaries. And if they marched back along the Euphrates and through Syria, they would simply starve. With the river almost dry, there simply wasn't enough food to support an army going that way. They would have to get away from the river and divert to the northeast to take advantage of the Tigris and its canals. That would mean making their journey even longer this time. On top of that, before they reached those fertile plains and fully resupplied, they would have to make two or three full-day marches to put distance between themselves and Babylon. Clearchus didn't like it, but there wasn't much he could do, so off they went. For the next few days, Clearchus and Ariaios were cautious. They arranged the Greeks along the entire column in full armor, marching in a tightly organized formation with several lines of Greeks near the front and rear, but only a few columns on either side of the whole army to make it look like there was one giant phalanx and dissuade any raids from Artaxerxes' forces. Over these days, messengers flitted back and forth between Artaxerxes and the retreat. Clearchus started leading them on with mild but nonsensical demands, like refusing to negotiate if the great king didn't serve him breakfast. It was just a delaying tactic to get far enough from Babylon that Artaxerxes would just let them go. After five days, they finally reached a village with canals flowing out of the Tigris. The retreat resupplied on grain and wine, and Xenophon commented on local delicacies like fresh dates, palm marrow, and the headache he got from eating too much sugary fruit. That might be hard for modern people to empathize with, but remember, there wasn't a ton of candy in ancient Greece. They stayed there for three days to rest and rebuild their strength. I also kind of imagine Clearchus and Ariaio spending long nights bent over a road map, trying to figure out where the hell they were going. After being led on by Clearchus for the better part of a week, and tracking the Greeks to the northern edge of Babylonia, Artaxerxes decided to try a new tactic. Instead of small parties of messengers, he sent Tissaphernes with an ornate but peaceful procession. This was a good call, at least on paper. Tissaphernes had been working in Anatolia for years in one capacity or another, so he should know how to talk with Greeks, even if he had made some bad calls. He was accompanied by Orontes, the new satrap of Armenia, and a whole host of servants and staff, including Theseus, to act as their official translator. Through Theseus, Tissaphernes tried to negotiate with the Greeks. The reinstated satrap of Lydia claimed that he had explained some of the Greek situation to Artaxerxes, and asked if he could just take them home as he returned to Sardis. They would march with Tissaphernes' troops to make sure there was no banditry, but they would go home and there would be no formal surrender. Officially, the great king was still considering the request, but he wanted Tissaphernes to ask the Greeks one thing. 
Why were they so devoted to Cyrus's cause if they were just mercenaries? Clearchus explained the situation honestly. They weren't really loyal to Cyrus. They didn't even mean to go to war with Artaxerxes. Cyrus just kept making up reasons for them to go further east until they were in Babylonia. They didn't have any intention of fighting Artaxerxes if they did not have to, but they still refused to surrender or march under guard. All they wanted was to be left alone and go back to their homeland. Tissaphernes seemed understanding and went back to Artaxerxes. They waited for two more nights, and sure enough, Tissaphernes returned in person just briefly to say that he had permission to lead the expedition home with all of the royal writs to requisition food along the way, and he'd be back in the morning to start their journey with all of his entourage. By the third day of waiting for this, tensions had started running high in the retreaters' camp. Independent of Tissaphernes' negotiation with Clearchus, Persian nobles and relatives had been flitting in and out of camp, trying to get Ariaios to surrender. And the Greeks feared that either he would abandon them as traitors to the cause for working with Tissaphernes, or that he would side with the Persians and they would massacre the Greeks. This was the generation that had grown up on stories of Marathon, Thermopylae, Salome, and Plataea, almost revering them as Greek mythology. Many of the men thought that Artaxerxes would try and kill them all in a prelude to the invasion of Greece. Clearchus kept trying to calm their fears, saying if Artaxerxes wanted to kill them, he had all of the advantages, he wouldn't need to use subterfuge. It only sort of helped. By the next day, Tissaphernes and Orontes finally arrived with their full baggage train, including families and servants. After a few days on the march, Ariaios even felt comfortable enough to integrate his camp into the larger Persian encampments. The Greeks kept themselves segregated, though, still a little wary, wariness which wasn't helped by a constant trickle of rumors, threats, and flared tension with their Persian cohort. On top of being foreigners who refused to sleep near them and kept talking about how they would defend themselves violently, most of the Persians in this train were now Tissaphernes and Orontes men, many of whom had been fighting the Greeks in a bloody battle just a week earlier. But they managed to get the march going, and after a few days they reached a city near the confluence of the Tigris and Diala rivers called Sitake, originally founded by the Satagadeans from central Iran, who had been deported either by the Assyrians or Darius the Great. The Greeks were marching at the rear of this procession, so when they stopped to make camp that night, the larger Persian contingent set up on the eastern side of the Tigris, while the Greeks set up at the edge of a large paradise garden just outside of Sitake on the western side. They left a pontoon bridge bobbing in the water between them. After dinner on the first night there, Xenophon and his friend, 
slash commanding officer Proxenus were walking through this paradise when they were approached by one of Ariaios's officers, looking for either Proxenus or Clearchus. That immediately set these two Greeks on edge, because Ariaios usually asked for Menon. But if he was looking for someone else, there was a problem. Proxenus identified himself, and the Persian warned them that the Greeks should station guards on the pontoon bridge overnight because Ariaios had caught wind of a plot to attack the Greeks in their sleep. Proxenus and Xenophon ran back to Clearchus, and they did put guards out, but nothing came of it. Maybe it was a prank, maybe it was an attempt to get the Greeks to attack first, or maybe... It was just a false alarm, but stuff like that kept happening. Their next major stop was Opus, near the northern suburbs of modern Baghdad, where they ran into another contingent returning home under the command of one of Cyrus and Artaxerxes' half-brothers. He was the current satrap of Elam, or possibly the new satrap of Media. He was leading troops northeast to travel back to Susa through the Zagros, but stopped to watch the bizarre collection of traitors, loyalists, and mercenaries. Beyond that, they marched through another long stretch of territory, where Parasadus owned most of the villages and farmland. Tissaphernes told the Greeks that they would be allowed to pillage these villages as an insult to Cyrus and the Queen Mother. There may have been some reluctance, because Xenophon is unusually cagey about these raids. But at the end of the day, they were mercenaries who had lost and needed to make up the financial disaster that came with that. So, they pillaged. I think it's fun to point out that, once again, Xenophon had no idea where they were geographically, and just kind of went off vibes when writing the Anabasis. Much like he thought the more barren stretches of the Euphrates were Arabia, he looked around and saw a satrap headed for Ecbatana, a city of Satagadeans, villages owned by Parasadis, and a large number of Iranians settled as part of the Hatru system described in episode 70. So he concluded this must be media. In reality, the next city he names was called Kahai and 19th century classicists and archaeologists spent a lot of time trying to figure out where this was or what the local name for this city might have been. Based on the route that Xenophon describes and the known cities in the area, it was the Bronze Age Assyrian capital of Asher. They were, in fact, in Assyria. All the while, the Greeks and Persians stayed suspicious of one another. Fights broke out in the markets when they stopped, and there were constant rumors of plots and betrayals. Clearchus decided he needed to sit down with Tissaphernes and get some clear answers so they could formulate a plan to stop this from continuing for the next few thousand miles. One night, about a week and a half into their journey, Clearchus went to Tissaphernes' tent and explained the situation. The conversation went down the well-trod path of, 
The Greeks are not plotting against you. Good, because if we Persians wanted you dead, you'd be dead. Maybe we can work out a deal and keep this mercenary thing going. So they made a deal. Tissaphernes, Orontes, and Ariaios, with all of their lieutenants, would meet with Clearchus and all of his lieutenants. They'd share wine, reassure one another, and expose any of their number who had been sowing discord between the two cultures. And it was a trap. Clearchus and his highest-ranking commanders, like Proxenus and Menon, went into the tent the next day and were immediately detained, while the selection of other officers who came with them were killed outside. Some of the other Greeks were out foraging and hunting in the plains, and the Persian cavalry started mowing them down. All the Greeks back in their camp could see were horsemen riding wildly across the countryside, until one of their soldiers came sprinting back into camp with a spear through his abdomen. The Greeks grabbed arms and armor and prepared to defend themselves, while 300 Persian cavalry rode up to the Greek camp, under the command of Ariaios and some of Cyrus the Younger's other supporters. They asked for the commanding officers to come forward, and there was a bit of confusion as they tried to figure out who ranked where, since all of the actual commanding officers were in the Persian camp. Xenophon and two others ultimately came forward. Ariaios announced that Clearchus was dead, and that Proxenus and Menon had turned him over as the mastermind of a conspiracy to kill the Persians in their sleep and rampage through Persian territory as bandits. Some verbal sparring ensued. Ariaios demanded complete surrender. Xenophon accused Ariaios of betraying his Greek friends in favor of men they had all been at war with just a couple weeks ago. Ariaios said that Clearchus's plan was to kill the Persians, no matter who they had fought for, so really it was the Greeks who were traitors. Xenophon demanded that they release Proxenus and Menon, since they had supposedly turned Clearchus in. There was some muttering, and then Ariaios gave orders for his men to leave, riding away with a crowd of confused and angry hoplites in his wake. Xenophon provides long eulogies for Clearchus, Menon, and Proxenus his close personal friends, and shorter epitaphs for the other officers who were captured. Evidently, he personally believed, or wanted to believe, that Ariaios's story was a lie, and it was all the evil Tissaphernes scheming. But that is not the story that Theseus tells. We'll get more of that in the next episode, but for now... Our eyewitness to the events in Babylon and Susa reveals a more complex plot. Theseus says flat out that Menon convinced Clearchus and the other Greek commanders to go to this meeting with their Persian counterparts, knowing it was a trap. Proxenus apparently began helping Menon late in the plot. Given that the formerly pro-Cyrus Persians were the ones who confronted the Greeks, and that Menon was sleeping with Ariaios, this may have been the condition for Persian forgiveness. They would betray the Greeks, 
and be allowed to return to royal favor. Theseus, and every source besides Xenophon, is certain that Menon was allowed to live out his life in Persia, while the other commanders were imprisoned, awaiting execution in Babylon. So next time, we will follow Clearchus's story into the depths of the Persian court at its absolute height. Until next time, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. You'll find an about page, a family tree, and the support page where you can financially support this project with things like Patreon, which gets you access to monthly bonus episodes or ad-free listening or discounts on merchandise, depending on your level of subscription. But you can also support the show for free. Go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, go to Spotify, go to wherever they do reviews these days and leave a review. Tell people how much you like it. If you want to tell specific people and link me on social media, you can do that at History of Persia on Twitter or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until next week, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.